uh, for your asking me to come this morning because I woke up this morning and think about it. All of a sudden, as I thought, now what will I say? What will I talk about? But you invited me to talk about my life in the Dharma. That's what was asked. To, and this wave of, I'm a physical wave of gladness uh, swept over me that I could have been so lucky to, without any particular contrivance or effort or merit of my own, just found myself encountering this amazing uh, tradition and these exquisite teachings and the characters along the way and that that has actually uh, been uh, blessed me for 48 years of my life. Yeah, in this lifetime. So what I thought I'd uh, do, partly with uh, Anna's encouragement and what she wrote me, um, is that I would uh, tell you about my life in the Dharma. A little bit of it. And so I tried to pick out what would be interesting to you. And um, then, so I'm talking for a while, and then I'd, I thought I'd offer you a practice uh, coming out of an experience I will have described in my time with the Sarvodia movement in Sri Lanka. And then we'll have a, a discussion and some more stories. And... Uh, see what's on your mind. And I uh, thought it'd be, uh, I just have this morning. And so I thought, well, we'll not have a break, but if you need to use the facilities, they're right there and you come out and come back in. How's that? Well, <clears throat> Here goes. <laughs> like Jack Cornfield and like Joseph Goldstein, they're the two I know. They encountered the Dharma thanks to service in the American Peace Corps. And uh, so for me, it was also in that uh, decade of the 60s. I think they were there in the 60s. Yes. Uh, I went over not with not as a volunteer, but as the uh, wife of uh, a Peace Corps staff person, Fran Macy, the deputy director of the Peace Corps India, along with three children between the ages of three and ten. They didn't allow uh, volunteers with children under 18 back then. And it was an era in the Peace Corps where everything was quite new and adventuresome and brightly uh, hued, uh, where the uh, families were recruited in a way to take part in this uh, effort to uh, meet people uh, in the villages uh, where they were encountering the challenges of uh, mid-20th century in a relatively newly independent country. And uh, in that era, the, yes, the families were, so we were having the volunteers in and out of our house, and I would took to working with them. And I, thanks to their needing me to drive, because the Peace Corps volunteer was not allowed to drive Peace Corps vehicles, which I thought was a very good idea since that meant I had to go along. And they had arranged, they said, come along. It's what the Tibetans call New Year's and Losar, and we have arranged a meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And this was a period when the Tibetans had, uh, were st they'd started coming out in 1958, 59, uh, into Nepal and India, so there was these waves of Tibetans coming down, fleeing the Chinese occupation of Tibet. And they were uh, in 
uh, encountering great difficulties. Uh, first of all, diseases from which they had no immunity and uh, tuberculosis and dysentery and various other uh, fevers and seizures and um, and also they were uh, didn't have any place to go they were uh, virtually penniless and they were <coughs> so there was a group of I went along and not only did I meet His Holiness uh, but I entered this world of Tibetan refugees uh, up in the northwest corner of India. And uh, this, I began to, uh, they walked right into my heart. And I uh, was fascinated and entranced by their way of being human, with, even with all the difficulties that they faced. Uh, and uh, I found myself working alongside a Peace Corps volunteer to uh, bring them into to uh, raise uh, money, to get rations, to help them settle, to keep the community of lamas and lay people together. Uh, and in the process, I spent a lot of time with them, as did my family. And their uh, way of being human was uh, so striking to me. There was a quality of such presence and of such benevolence, even when they were finding themselves in such difficult situation. And that I naturally wanted, I had no exposure to the Buddha Dharma, but I would really wanted to know what were the teachings that they were embodying in their dances. They had, the lamas had their dances and they had their tankas that they painted, their scrolls and the community I became allied with was a community of uh, great meditators, uh, great um, uh, yogis with uh, arcane powers and, uh, and art and dance. I wanted some teachings, but I did not want to burden the uh, Rinpoches and the Lamas of this community. And so uh, I waited a bit, and then I f found a Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhist nun who is English-born, who deserves to have a whole book written about her, a classy dame who uh, had been in the Nehru government and who was now in robes with shaven head. And she was uh, helping also settle the, uh, these Tibetans. And we got, became good friends. The Tibetan lamas all called her mummy. Her real name was Karma Kechog Palmo in the Kargyu tradition. And uh, I said, Mommy, could you teach me some? I just said, I come to Rinpoche and Dorzong and Rinpoche and Chu Chow, and they're all so busy, and the yogis, they're not, they're not well. Could you teach? Just give me a little stuff. She said, oh, my darling, nothing would please me more. <laughs> And so, astonishingly, she started me out not with Tibetan Buddhism, but with the practice that had been her entry into the Buddha Dharma, which was Vipassana. Uh, and she had been a student of Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma, and she began me with that. She said, come up for a week into the hermitage. There were other Tibetan nuns that she'd gathered. And on my way up to, from our home in New Delhi to uh, the Himalaya foothills, it's just where they were. Was, uh, was At that point, it was not far from Dharamsala and Dalhousie. 
I had a book with me, and I, uh, it was, uh, and this is, I want to read to you. I had a, uh, an epiphany on the train. Uh, it had to do with a book, but it had to do with my presence and the impossibility that felt of being on that train. And, uh, and this was at the doorway of my coming into the Buddha Dharma, and it stamped it strongly ever since. So I would like to, it'll be quicker for me to read than to describe. And this is from my book, Widening Circles, which is a memoir, but only up until I was 70. So, <laughs> and I'm turning 84 this week. <laughs> Hmm? Can I get you some tea? Ginger tea? No. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> this this water's enough. Okay. So uh, I arrange for the care of the children and go up for a uh, week. I was trying to get on the train. I'd, I'd been um, so cocky, not, I, why had I been so cocky not to reserve at least a second-class berth? When the doors to the nearest third-class carriage finally opened, the crowd at each was 10 or 20 bodies deep, each body held bent on getting aboard. The crush pressed me so tight I could barely breathe. I feared suffocation. Yet the surging push did not let me escape. My arm with the water jug caught between coolies as they shoved ahead seemed to get separated from me. I was sure I'd be dismembered. As I was rammed through the door, I started to panic. Over the shouts and deafening din, I heard someone screaming, realized it was I, and I began to cry instead. Three-tiered, wooden berths, running crossways, left only a narrow aisle, and from the maelstrom of, maelstrom of bodies, hands pushed me up like jetsam tossed from the sea onto a topmost shelf. Other hands threw my bag and bedroll. Weak with relief, drenched with sweat, I cowered there under the ceiling. Directly beneath me, a large, garrulous family unpacked an endless series of containers, thrust up redolent wads of rice, curry, melting banana. Accepting a chapati, I drew up my feet and disappeared behind a book. I wanted to effect as total a withdrawal as possible <laughs> while the light still permitted me to read. I wanted to banish from my mind the last half hour and erase the whole teeming carriage full of humanity, its jabber and clamor and smells. A pencil marked my place partway through the chapter on Buddhism in a paperback on world religions by Houston Smith. <laughs> this and this book was... At that point in the 60s, there was the Peace Corps foot lock, book locker, and every volunteer got a locker of books. Um, I proceeded to read. The subject was the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, which is held to be tanha, or craving. Grateful that I was able to concentrate at all, I read a paragraph that yanked at my attention. Tanha is a specific form of desire, I read, the desire to pull apart from the rest of life and seek fulfillment through these bottled up segments of being we call ourselves. I continued to read, it is the will to private fulfillment, the ego oozing like a secret sore. Every few lines to let the words sink in, I would lift my eyes and let my gaze wander down the packed coach. 
quote, we strap our faith in love and destiny to the puny burrows of our separate selves, which are certain to stumble and give out. Prizing our egos, coddling them, we lock ourselves inside. My breathing deepened, each breath filling more of my body as if to ground and steady me for a physical challenge. My mind stilled in wonder, for the thing that then occurred seemed outside its control. Suddenly, I was no longer enclosed inside my own body. But I wasn't outside it either. It seemed to be silently exploding, expanding to the point where everything else was inside it too. Everything out there, each gesticulating, chewing, sleeping form, each crying baby and coughing heap of rags, and the flickering, swaying carriage itself was as intimately my body as I. I had turned inside out, like a kernel of popcorn shaken over the fire. My interior was now on the outside, inextricably mixed with the rest of the world, and what I had tried to exclude was now at its core. My mind, when it could think, repeated one thing, released into action. Now we can be released into action. The world from which I could not protect myself became a world I was free to enter, a world I was free to be. The division between doing and being had evaporated. Some primordial tension had dissolved, at least for the moment, letting self-righteousness and self-blame cancel each other out. The self was neither to be vaunted nor overcome, neither to be punished nor improved. It needed only to be seen through, like a bubble that would eventually Pop. Uh, what happened that night, um, and that's a pretty good description of it, uh, abated, of course. There was, you know, I had to get off the train. I spent the night and went on and went up into Dalhousie and joined Mummy and went through a week of. Uh, my first practice of it, what we were calling it then was satipatthana or vipassana. And uh, it was about that has, that was so uh, real, almost so cellular that it has uh, never uh, left me. And it has characterized my most basic uh, take on the teachings of the Lord Buddha and my greatest uh, gratitude for what I have through the years seen as the heart of it, uh, that non-separateness from all that is. And it's interesting that in uh, the uh, years that followed, uh, as I moved into the Buddhist world there in Asia and back here, uh, I would hear the word emptiness. And uh, that didn't quite uh, capture it as much for me as what Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher, has done with emptiness. He's turned it over too and calls it interbeing that uh, it was not so much uh, finding a kind of non-existence of my separate self or the no-self, but uh, being tipped into uh, a radical uh, interconnectedness or interexistence 
uh, with all things. When I, uh, uh, mummy had in mind that I would follow her own spiritual journey and uh, end up in Tibetan Buddhism. But we uh, were redeployed by the Peace Corps to North Africa wow. while I was still in the Vipassana part. Wow. <laughs> and so she said, that's all right, my dear. By the time you get back to the States, my dear Trunkpa will be there and he will take you into And so I during our years in North Africa and West Africa with the Peace Corps, uh, I had the Vipassana practice that I, never with a group, but it was always there, and I was reading a little, and uh, I loved it. And what was very useful for me was a book that I had encountered when I had arrived in India. It was actually a uh, Parsi uh, socialist, a wonderful saintly Gandhian man who had introduced me to this book. He said, this has just come out. And I looked at the title and it was The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by Nyana Ponikatera. So I still think this is the greatest book. I'm engraved it on your minds, <laughs> Nyana Ponikatera. <laughs> Oh, I still, I still have it. Forty-eight years later, it's still by my bed, and it's got a certain, you know, it's he still uses the male pronoun throughout, you know, he still has a slight Victorian uh, ring to it. But oh, it's so good. <laughs> you can, it's wonderful how you continue to love the uh, people and the readings that opened the door for you, and this, this was one. So, um, by the time I finally came back to the States, I knew that um, I knew that I wanted to go back to school, and uh, I was uh, soon to turn 40, and I was going to go into graduate school, and I was going to uh, study uh, the world's religions and with focus on Buddhism. And that I had a vision that came to me one afternoon. I think it did when I was doing that first Vipassana up at Dalhousie under Mummy's tutelage. And that was a, a stone bridge. I just saw this stone bridge. You could see the stones quite clearly. And it just filled my heart. And I said, oh, that's what I want to be. I want to be a stone, just one stone to go in a bridge between the East and the West. Mummy, too, when she came up that initial week, uh, underscored for me unknowingly that realization about the self. On her first visit, I remember my saying, and I, I hadn't talked, so at <coughs> my voice, I said, Mommy, I'm terrible at this. My mind is all over the place. I'm distracted and lazy. And she stopped. She said, do not use the word I like that. <laughs> to say that anchors the notion in you that you are a separate self. These are just, you can just say, uh, laziness arising, not I am lazy. <laughs> Anger happening, not I am angry. So, so there's right away for me, wasn't I blessed? Yes. Oh, <laughs> such a lucky girl. <laughs> yeah. So um, how am I doing on time? You're doing great. Okay. Oh, good. Because I, I have a tendency to rattle on and on, as my daughter knows. 
here, let me get you a clock. I forgot. This. I'm looking at yours. Okay. How you doing? Yeah, okay. All right. So uh, now I'm from a Christian background, and I loved the church. I had a wonderful liberal Protestant. Uh, preacher for a grandfather, and uh, I loved uh, church, and I had studied in college. I'd studied biblical history, and um, but I'd had to leave it because of certain, uh, there was this God problem, <laughs> and um, but so why I had to walk out from Christianity, which is uh, described here, I won't go into it, but um, I missed God. I missed a sense of a great metaphysical presence. I don't know if any of you ever have that. But I wanted to uh, feel those everlasting arms. I wanted to feel a great benevolent uh, presence uh, leaning over me, uh, the way Comptal Rinpoche would beam at me and put his forehead to my forehead, the head of the community. But he wasn't God. He didn't want to be my God. And so that was for a period of time in there, not long, uh, the Vipassana practice, which was great for uh, liberating me from uh, the um, holes of, of uh, and stuck places of uh, distress and or morbidity or self-vaunting, all that you know, you know, the whole thing of uh, trying to, you know, in a, in a hyper-individualist culture and history, point in history, that uh, it was this uh, marvelous, marvelous way to uh, free oneself, feel spacious. But I missed the sense of a presence. Uh, and I then, what happened in my studies and also in my practice, and I was doing both at the same time. I went to Syracuse University, where it's a dynamite religion department at that time. Uh, and in my studies, I um, found that uh, I landed in a, a body of scriptures called the Perfection of Wisdom Scriptures, Prajnaparamita. And this is at the, as some of you know, this is at the dawn of the Mahayana, about five centuries after the Lord Buddha lived. And the teachings that uh, emerged then were a return to uh, the Buddha's central teaching of this radical interbeing, interexistence, interdependence, paticca samuppada. And uh, it was identified with a, this wisdom, this wisdom of knowing our non-separateness was identified with an uh, exquisite archetypal figure or presence, which was known as the perfection of wisdom. And uh, it was female. It is female. And it is recognized in these early scriptures as they call it, the mother of all Buddhas. And there, her qualities were qualities of deep space, 
qualities of a very creative emptiness because the scriptures that introduced her used the same words that were later used for the concept of zero when the concept of zero was brought over to the West by uh, Arab traders and voyagers uh, before it was given a cipher like a circle. It had names and the names were the names of the mother of all Buddhas. I have a chapter on that in my book that I brought out. But I think it's probably here in the bookstore. But world is lover, world is self. And I began then to move from uh, the no-self to the experience of the, that the, oh, it was almost like a figure-ground reversal, that the relations between these selves or no-selves came to the foreground like a web, like a great net, and later on in this tradition, that would turn into the jeweled net of Indra. But that this web-like nature of reality, uh, indeed the web of life, at that point came to the fore in my awareness. And that my practice began to reflect that of the uh, reality of a larger body of which I was a part. So today, for example, in my uh, practice of anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out, which is wonderful for uh, calming and awakening the mind, giving it that focus that's always moving in and out, and you can put your mind right there. It moved a bit to an experience, and I, this has come into my teachings, not just of noticing the breath and its evanescence and its ever-presence, but into a sense of being breathed that I was, that our practice helps us go beyond any outlines of our separateness to partake of a larger reality. So we begin with feeling how as you experience your breathing, you can experience that, notice that you're not deciding each time to breathe in or breathe out, but that it seems to be happening of its own volition. And it's like, indeed, you're being breathed. Just like we're all being breathed. No one in this room is not being breathed by life at this moment. So there's, as you move on with that in practices that I call breathing through, as I began to work with how we can be with the pain of our world and not shut it out, not throw up the defenses, not enclose ourselves in separate islands of tranquility or comfort, but really radically open to what's happening in our world. That uh, shift to that uh, inter-existence in a larger uh, body became, and that the and felt that as presence with the prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And at this point. Uh, I was very involved in the uh, well, anti-war movement, 
and the uh, Vietnam War, but also in the uh, environmental movement. And uh, the thinking of deep ecology just, wow, washed into my life in, uh, in a wonderful, I greeted it with open arms. And I said, oh, I'm so glad to have a secular Western term for what we're experiencing. I was easier because by this time I was doing a lot of interactive teaching with activists, activists for peace and social justice and sane environment uh, so that people could feel and I, and I could feel and we all could feel endless support from the web of life itself, concretizing, taking form in each of us with all our particularities. And that even our limits and even our hurts and even our faults uh, were ways that were equipping us could be used for taking part in a much larger awareness, an awareness that is coming almost as an evolutionary development as we open our eyes and hearts to our interconnectedness with all beings. Uh, that this was not just something to enjoy on a meditation cushion, but something that could help us uh, do what needs to be done to, uh, for our world, that we could help us see to fair housing, that could help us close down the uh, contaminating reactors that could help us deal with hunger, that could help us deal with contamination of the waters, et cetera, et cetera. If we're that, that interconnected as the Lord Buddha uh, taught and as I'd experienced in the practices, then how great is the company and how great is the resilience and indeed, how great is the power that we can open to? Are you following me? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, what, hap what really helped me a lot with this is that by a uh, great... Uh, surprising quirk of fate in my graduate studies. And it happened to be right after an encounter with His Holiness the Karmapa, another great Tibetan figure. Um, in the 70s? Yeah, this was in the 70s, and I was in school then. Mm -hmm. And Mummy had brought him over to the States on his first visit. And Trungpa would... Chogam Trungpa was at his side. Mm -hmm. But I, was not, I had decided to stick with the Vipassana. I was not. But I went to see him because the Tibetans are very important to me. They show me so much, but I just, I like things a little simpler. <laughs> and, and so uh, I saw him. I went to see him when he landed. And... Um, there were a lot of people around him, but he remembered me from hanging out with Comptoir Rinpoche and the Tibetans in Delhi. And I said, Your Holiness, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like a blessing on my head because uh, I'm entered, I've become a scholar. And I am, I, <laughs> and so I thought he would just wave his hands over my head. Instead, he grabbed it. I put, and he grabbed it like a football. <laughs> and then he proceeded to go do this loud, long, I think it was a long Manjushri something. And, and I felt as if my head were stuck in an electric socket. <laughs> and and um, so that was that, except, <laughs> except that I didn't sleep for the next three weeks. And during that period, there was just so much pouring through my, excuse me, <laughs> pouring through my mind that I was getting so excited 
and I, I saw the secrets of everything. <laughs> I've forgotten about 99.999% except some of the images. And uh, I remember I, one night I was rather worn out from not sleeping and I sat up in bed crying. And, and your father, <laughs> my husband friend, he's roused and said, honey, what's the matter? And I said, oh, it's, it's so immense. <laughs> and he sat up and he said, I said, I know just how Einstein felt. <laughs> and he and God bless the man, he didn't laugh at me. And he said, oh boy, that's, that's big, isn't it? And then he went back to sleep. <laughs> but the next thing that happened was I walked into a seminar on systems theory. Yeah, so I did. So my study of our interconnectedness, our non-separateness, was so so strongly held by the Buddha Dharma and by the teachings of the perfection of wisdom. Uh, but also here came out of Western science, uh, the general systems theory and uh, living systems theory and systems cybernetics. Uh, two and a half thousand years later, uh, when I walked in there, and I think it would, I can't help but thinking that Car the Karmapas, whatever he did, made me see that, oh wow, this is very similar. <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, Gautama the Buddha didn't talk about with feedback loops and uh, self-organizing systems, but wow, this is he would have or he could have, and um, so that has a hugely stamped uh, my life. And um, oh, and I just want to say with the with the uh, both the systems and the Buddhism and the environmental work and the deep ecology. Along with systems comes Gaia theory. And you, they use systems thinking to show that our planet is a living system. And, and it was, uh, fortunately, um, uh, Sir James Lovelock did not call it the hypothesis of uh, possibilities of self-organizing dynamics in the planet, but he called it at the suggestion of his novelist friend, William Golding, he called it Gaia theory, the name of the Greek goddess for Earth. And so you will not be surprised that as I was experiencing in practice and in scriptures the teachings of the mother of all Buddhas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. there was a kind of mother of all Buddhas and and uh, Gaia theory came. <laughs> yeah, I've been such a lucky person. Uh, it's been so wonderful to be able to uh, uh, play, play with uh, this and be informed. And uh, during this time, I um, came more and more fascinated with the earliest teachings of the Lord Buddha, uh, which are seen as pre-Theravadan in the, in the Pali Sutras. And they are uh, very focused on, there very many of them uh, are social teachings on how we relate to each other politically and economically and socially across caste lines, and they were very radical teachings. But interestingly enough, they haven't made it back then, haven't made it into um, anthologies. It wasn't very interesting to Westerners, whether they were European or America. They were looking for those more arcane, you know, what you can do with the power of the mind, and, but not how you organize your life. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, I thought, you know, you know, if these teachings of how uh, 
our dependent core rising as beings, as, as social beings, as uh, in our psyches, in our relationships. Um, if we could, you know, this could make a revolution. Uh, a nonviolent, brilliant, heartfelt revolution. And someday, I think I'll, I'll work on that because someday in some generation to come, these will be taken seriously. And then I, and I, and I said, you know, because uh, as a Christian, I knew about liberation theology, how uh, particularly starting in Latin America, people were going back to the teachings of the founder of the religion and seeing how uh, radical, socially and politically radical they were in liberation. So I said, what we have here, I'll be part of it. I'll help shine the light on liberation Buddhism. How you can take seriously the, uh, bring these teachings of the Buddha. For example, no, I better start to see. Ooh. Okay. Ask me about it later. Uh, I need to. Uh, uh, What? You have till 12.30. Oh, good. <laughs> but I want to get people move okay, up and moving. Okay. So I'll just talk about Sarvodia, and then right. we'll do a Sarvodia practice. Great. That's good. Yeah. Oh, you can see uh, I get excited. <laughs> I mean, do you realize how lucky we are that we should happen to be alive at this time. Don't, uh, I, I urge you to, to uh, be astonished over and over again uh, and see how precious this is, this rare and precious life, particularly at this moment, because we're facing some hard stuff. We're doing some pretty, some pretty, Pretty drastic and terminal stuff is being done to the living body of Earth. And so we have to wake up. We have to wake up to the power of our uh, interconnectedness. So, well, anyway, I was thinking this would be some, I will be part of evolving a liberation Buddhism when on a journey back to, um, to, to India, I heard about uh, the Sarvodia movement in Sri Lanka. And I went down to see it. And this was mid-70s. And uh, here was a village development movement active at that point in about 5,000 villages that was based on Gandhian principles but cast in Buddhist terms because its founder was Buddhist and the majority of Selenese are Buddhist. So it took the, uh, so I'm making a big change now. Mm, palm trees, tropical island. <laughs> I just Sri Lanka. I put a new slide in. Sri Lanka. <laughs> Sri Lanka, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they'd take it. So I went down there and was directed to the center outside of Colombo and walked in to uh, a, a um, crowded bungalow and is part of a big compound. And there was this little man, and he is little, named Dr. Arya Ratno, and he wasn't doctor then, just Ari, and in a little office <laughs> with papers strewn, uh, no, not strewn, piled. And I sat down, and he started talking, and I just 
practically levitated because I found that all the notions that I had of a possible potential liberation Buddhism were already coming out of his mouth. And I just thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to hang out here. And, um, and he took the term sarvodhya that is Gandhian, which means the uplift of all as, the, as when Gandhi used it. And he cast it in Buddhist terms, meaning not the uplift, but the awakening of all. And um, so everybody can wake up. And that's, they were using that as a term for the revolution that would come, that they were making. And also as a term for development. That there was at that point people coming in, um, the World Bank, nonprofits, do-gooders from Western countries, and uh, bringing what was needed to develop, and it was. And Ari said, we don't need westernization, and we don't need modernization, and we don't need capitalization. We need to wake up together to our power. We have everything that it takes. We were the island of the Dharma. We were uh, the granary of the East. We've been impoverished by four and a half centuries of colonial rule, first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the uh, British. And, but in, the, in our tradition and in uh, the Dharma, and also it's there in the religions of the others on this island. There were uh, Muslims and Christians and Hindus. And so whenever we, we will make our revolution together and we will honor those traditions as well. But they took, a, radically they took this notion of the interexistence of all things as a principle for the, their community development work, which is now about 15,000. So I went back and I went through uh, the uh, village training to be a, I went back for a year I got the Ford Foundation, thank you very much, give me uh, just uh, not much money, but you don't need much. And um, I went back. My youngest child had just finished high school, so there was the empty nest syndrome, and it, I helped empty it <laughs> and went to uh, spend a year in Sri Lanka. And there I saw how at that point particularly in the story of this movement, and I wrote a book about it, and I forgot to bring it along, but it's on my website, you can, if you're interested. And uh, What is the title of it? Dharma and Development. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Ari has been here out of Spirit Rock a number of times. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was absolutely fascinated by the blending of spiritual teachings with political economic relevance. And um, it fit uh so I think that's a, what I, I think I'll stop now, for now, and just give you a practice. Um, what I found was that uh, they took the teachings, uh, certain teachings like um, the Four Noble Truths, and they would paint them on the sides of the walls of the uh, centers. And there would be, uh, then it would be translated into a social dharma. So there is a, a suffering or decadent village, first noble truth. Second noble truth. 
because this village is divided against itself. And that's, so that's the, and there, uh, that's the second noble truth. And the third noble truth, again, it's all put in, in uh, collective terms. The village wakes up to self-help. Uh, and we, uh, they start with the kids and all the way on up, redefining yourself and what you can do for the village and for others. And they always start with a uh, work project which the people themselves decide what they want to fix in their village and then do what they call a shramadana. So they take the teachings and then they took the wheel of causality and put it in social terms. And what has stuck with me the most, perhaps, was so much, but uh, is how they took the uh, what they called the four abodes of the Buddha, we call them the four Brahma Viharas, the, or the four immeasurables. And immediately uh, trained people, encouraged people to experience them socially with each other. Now these four, uh, and they were so much on people's, people were so accustomed to them that, they're, you know, they're metta, karuna, Upeka and no, Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka. Loving kindness, compassion, join the joy of others, and equanimity. And they would give it very, very strong behavioral, how you would act when you feel this, and string them together. So they would often say, Boy, I'm so glad for Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka. I don't know what I would do without metamooding and you know, <laughs> and and so uh, when I would go around in my uh, in a motorcycle, yeah, and uh, to get up to the where they were off the beaten track, on out of traffic. At any rate, I would find that the. Uh, and I was focused a lot on the monks who were working for them, the Buddhist monks, and how they would use these teachings in uh, taking the movement out, Sarvodhya, and also on the uh, lay people. And so uh, when I came back to this country, I found that I was just uh, sort of brimming with this, and so grateful for it, I wanted to share it with my Western brothers and sisters. And um, the first time that I found myself doing this was right after I'd come back. There was an international meeting on Sarvodia uh, in Holland. Because the Dutch are very, have given a lot of support because you remember they were colonial power there for 150 years. And um, at this meeting on how Sarvodia organizes, they were uh, several hundred people in an auditorium and a stage and a pulpit or a lectern, and you just listen to people talk. And I was getting very antsy, and I said, but that's not how Sarvodia works. And so I put up a sign and I said, uh, experiential workshop on how you, uh, on how Sarvodia organizes in a village. And I found a time and a room and I thought to myself, and I'll just treat everybody as if they're a village that, and I'm a Sarvodia organizer. Are you following me? And uh, so when we uh, gathered that night, there were about 40 people who showed up, and they sat in a big circle. And I suddenly realized, oh, we don't just begin uh, with a um, sort of the agenda. We do meditation first. We'll meditate on the 
for a boat. Oh, but they don't know them. Because in Sri Lanka, you know them. And you, they just, mm. but <laughs> So I could do a guided meditation, but I don't really like doing that because I myself fall asleep when in a guided <laughs> meditation. And so I thought, oh, I'll have them do it interactively. So I went around and I said, you look at each other. Now you two turn and look at each other. Now you two turn and look at each other. And so, and then I guided them in the uh, four boats. And I found that was a terrific way to uh, experience them. So that's uh, what we're going to do. But we're going to do it walking around in a kind of milling, which is how I do it in my workshops now. And that gives you a chance to... Uh, would you like to take um, five minutes before we do it? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.